0: The Advent season, and we're in a new series. Uh, Sam Randall, our student ministries pastor, did a phenomenal job uh, kicking off our series last Sunday. If you were gone, please listen online. It's a series we're calling "Seeing Jesus," and uh, the Bible makes an extraordinary claim in Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, that we see Jesus—not we might, not we possibly will or we will see Jesus, it Actually, it actually says, we see Jesus, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. And we see him in a variety of ways. For example, we see him in uh, the, rich, the rich and brilliant textured portraits that we, of Christ in the Gospels. And the breadth and depth of Jesus uh, shatters our mental framework at this time of year, especially as we dive into the stories of Advent. And once you see him, you can never be the same. Once you see him, you never can be the same. And I encourage you to to join us as we see Jesus in a variety of roles. Last week, Sam talked about seeing Jesus as guide. This morning, I'm going to talk about seeing Jesus as healer. When it comes to miracles of healing, when it comes to healing, we we tend to discount them. I think in our Western culture, we have a tendency to not really believe in miracles uh, uh, in comparison to other parts of the world. We seem very reluctant, as if miracles only occur through a, a fictitious genie. And there's a story, actually, uh, of one time where a sales rep, an admin, and a manager find an antique oil lamp uh, on, a, on the ground. And they open it up, and a genie comes out of the bottle. And the genie says, I'll give you whatever wishes you want. And right away, the admin says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go first. I want to be in the Bahamas on a yacht and with uh, plenty of margaritas. And the genie says, okay, poof, she's gone. Next is the uh, uh, sales rep. Sales rep uh, says, I want to be on a cruise in the Mediterranean and then to spend my days in Paris with wine and the love of my life. Poof, she's gone. Next comes up the manager. And the genie says, okay, sir, your opportunity to make some wishes. And he says, okay, I want to lose 40 pounds. I want my wife to actually clean the house. And I want to be on the cover of People magazine as the sexiest sexiest man alive. And the genie replies, you're on your own. (laughs) When it it comes to miracles, though, we tend to think in terms of the genie in the bottle. But the thing about Jesus, when we really see him, is that we see miracles surrounding him in a a number of ways. And if you're reading in uh, the Immersed Bible, a lot of you are, is that you come across in a lot of the uh, books that we've gone through, uh, story after story of miracles that Jesus performs. It's centered to his character and who he is. And in fact, we shouldn't be surprised because in the Old Testament, for example, uh, the prophet Isaiah predicted this, that when the Messiah comes, when Jesus Christ would come, uh, Isaiah said this, then the the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. In other words, when when the Messiah comes, when Jesus Christ comes, is that there is going to be healing and miracles surrounding him. And then in the last prophecy, Malachi, in the Old Testament, there's a 400-year gap between Malachi and actually the birth of Jesus. That, that uh, 400 year gap, but one of the last words that we read in the Old Testament is Malachi says, "When when the Messiah comes, when the Son of Righteousness comes, in chapter four, verse two, when the Son of Righteousness comes, he'll have healing in his wings. He'll have healing in his wings. It's central as we see Jesus to see him as the miracle worker." It's not an addendum. It's not something that sort of is on the periphery when it comes to Christ. It's central to who He is. One writer says that when it comes to Christianity, the miracles that we see in Jesus have decisive significance that converge on Him and demonstrate Him to the world. In comparison, in the Quran, Muhammad does not perform any miracles at all, but we see in the Gospels 16 different miracles of healing by Jesus. And this morning, we're going to dive into one of them. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 9. We're going to spend the rest of the sermon just kind of going verse by verse through this amazing story. And and as we go through the story, what I want you to do the best that you can with your mind's eye is imagine you're in that story. Imagine you're in that story. Some of you, when you see a movie that you really like or a book that you like, you can kind of picture yourself being in there. And I want you to kind of step into first century Jerusalem, and where Jesus is here, and what's going to happen here. Let me pray for us as we start. Father God, I pray for your blessing upon this sermon, and Lord, I pray that you anoint my words, and Lord, that uh, this would bring glory to you, just as we sang. And Lord, I pray that um, as we go through this this incredible story, this real story, it's not fictitious that it would move us, it would compel us, it would inspire us. And Lord, I submit myself to you, and I pray that, um, that this sermon would not be about me. It would, as people listen to uh, my words, that it wouldn't be about um, any of my insight or my uh, teaching, but you would be on display. God, my desire, my prayer this morning, this past week— it has been for your fame, your renown, your reputation to be increased. In Jesus' name, we pray. Everybody said, "Amen." If you're teaching notes, you want to follow along because I'm going to make some introductory uh, comments as we go through verses one through seven. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who was had been blind from birth. A rabbi, his disciples asked him, "Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins?" It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned by the one who sent us. I love this part right here. The night is coming that no one can work. But while I am here, I am the light of the world. In the Gospel of John, there's eight I am's. This is one of them right here. I am the light of the world. Verse 6, Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Salam, And Salam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back. So just a few notes here. In verse 2, it seems quite odd that the disciples are, are asking, did his, did his parents sin? Because he's born blind— but back in, in, in antiquity, in the ancient times, they actually believed a big, a big part of their worldview was that if somebody had some sort of physical malady, some kind of illness, in this case blindness, and he was born blind, so it must have been in his parents that caused that sin. We see a little bit of that in Job, that Job's friends are like, you, know, some, you must have done something to cause all these problems in your life. That was, that was a very common worldview that, that if you had a physical malady, Something happened. You did something. In this case, he's born blind, so it had to be his ancestors, his parents who sinned. And that's not the case. Uh, Jesus brings clarity to that. Verse 6. As we see Jesus spitting on the ground, he makes mud. Now, this is something that that I found very interesting this past week when I was was researching this, is that this was a common rabbinical uh, act. They would actually reach down in the dirt, and if someone needed uh, healing or perhaps They had a cut or something like that. Oftentimes, rabbis would reach down in the dirt because it was sort of living out Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. When God creates humanity, he creates humanity from what? The dirt. That's why Jesus is doing that. He's reaching down in the dirt. It's an echo of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And then in verse 7, we find out about this water of Salaam. And that was something that was very sacred. The pool of Salaam was very sacred. We have a picture of that, actually. Can we pull that up? (laughs) <laughs> okay, it's not there. All right. Anyways, the, the, the Pool of Salaam had, has been restored. In 2004, they did an archaeological dig and actually found the Pool of Salaam and actually restored it. It's, it's actually pretty incredible. But the water was viewed as something sacred to the point that when they would have a parade, a procession during the Feast of Tabernacles— uh, they'd actually have someone go down there with a, a, a gold uh, vessel and actually take some of the water from the Pool of Salaam and actually they would carry it in the procession because that water was viewed as something very, very sacred. So there's some introductory thoughts and ideas here. And what's really ironic about this is that, obviously, Jesus does the healing here. We need to see that. It's not the Pool of Salaam. But it's Jesus as the living water telling this blind man to go down to the pool of water to wash himself. I love that that irony there. Now, there's four different responses to this healing. That's what I want to focus on. And as you imagine yourself in this story, what kind of response would you have to the blind man? What kind of response would you have to this incredible miracle that almost seems like from a gene in a bottle, this sort of miraculous healing? Let's take a look at verses 8 through 12. His neighbors and others who knew him— the blind man, as a blind beggar, circle that phrase, blind beggar, because now he's not only a blind man, but he's a blind beggar, Ask each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. They're skeptical. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud, spread it over my eyes, and told me, go to the pool of Salaam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. We're going to see in this story is this very informal uh, uh, interaction. I just love this. I had no idea where he went. But the first uh, fill in the blank that you have is that neighbors and others demonstrate skepticism. They're skeptical. It can't be him. It can't be the blind beggar. Because... Not, not, not only is he blind, but he's also a beggar. And in the Jewish tradition in that day and age, if you were a beggar, you were on the bottom of the societal ladder. A little, little above lepers. But you were on the bottom because begging was something that you just didn't do. And even though in, within the Jewish tradition that charity, helping those in need was very important, but if you were a beggar, you were in a very, very tough spot. And oftentimes, you could not escape that, that sort of uh, status. And you were looked down upon, you are ostracized, very much you are on your own. That's why in the text, for example, it doesn't say his community. It doesn't say his friends. What does it say? His neighbor, his neighbors and others. There's this distancing. You see that in the text? Neighbors. They're distant. They don't have any relationship with this guy. In fact, they don't even say him by a name. It's, it's the blind beggar. The neighbors and others. There's this gap between the blind man and these folks. And there is a lot of skepticism they have around that. And as you see yourself in the story, would you, would you be skeptical too? When it comes to stories of, of miracles, and of healing, what, what kind of response do you have? And I'll be honest with you, for the longest time, I used to be very skeptical when I hear, when I hear stories about miracles. You know, I, I would oftentimes uh, deduce that it was, it was medicine or, or something occurred that made that happen. But it really wasn't a miracle from God. Until in one of the churches I served, there was a young man who was addicted heavily to meth. And he was married, had a young family. But then uh, one weekend, he finally just decided to leave his family, get into a hotel, hire some prostitutes. It's like the um, story of the prodigal son. Hire some prostitutes and spend every dollar he had. Get as high as possible. And then his wife, amazingly, and his kids went to find him. And finally they found him and took him home and cared for him. And then brought him to Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge into a treatment program for a year. And to see him now, as compared to where he was before, because I saw him before, it's an absolute miracle. the life he's living, uh, the love he has for his family and his kids, how, how he picked himself up and started his own painting business. and it was an absolute miracle. And when I saw that transformation happen, it was incredible. and by the way, if you don't have plans for New Year's Eve on that Sunday morning, please come to church because we're going to have Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge here and you're going to hear stories of miracles. A number of their, their patients are going to share. They're going to sing. They have the choir. They're going to sing here in the service and also they're going to give testimonies. And you will walk away moved, inspired. You have tears, bring Kleenexes because their stories are incredible. And for me, after I saw that firsthand I'm no longer reluctant when it comes to miracles. And the thing is, when people talk to him, and they, and they say, Matt, you know, this, this transformation in your life, because he has old friends that he'll, he'll bump into, and they'll be like, Matt, this transformation, this change in your life, you look totally different, your demeanor is different, you look healthy, uh, and he always points to Jesus. Points to Jesus. Yeah, Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge was, you know, incredible, helpful. Um, My my family was very helpful, but he always points back to the healing power of Jesus Christ. I love that. Next, verses 13 through 17. Let's take a look at that. Then, this is the neighbors and others, they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it, so he told them, he put the mud over my eyes. I wish he would would say in there, yeah, yeah, he spit in this dirt. It was kind of weird, but he put mud on my eyes. And when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees says, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. He broke the rules. You don't work on the Sabbath. Working on the Sabbath. Others said, how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? There was deep division of opinion among them. And the Pharisees, again, question the man who had been blind. and deme- you get a sense, like, this, this blind man is just, like, getting tired of this, these questions? You'll actually see it later in the text. It's like, come on, man. I'm done, t- I'm done talking. What's your problem? But he, he's being uh, asked again, question the man, what's your, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. I love that response. Well, the, the next fill in the blank is that the Pharisees react with legalism. They react with legalism. Forget the miracle. It happened on the Sabbath. And when it came to the Sabbath, I think for us, we don't realize just how important of a tradition this was. Because back in the Old Testament, if you read this, uh, God actually, when he institutes the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath, it's a holy day, the Israelites, back in Exodus, he says, if, and in fact, if you, if you don't rest on the Sabbath, if you do not rest and uh, take it easy and sleep in, then uh, I'll kill you. It's actually pretty much what he says. Because uh, almost like, if I don't, then the work that you're doing is going to. Okay? So they actually thought that if they broke the Sabbath, that God could kill them. So they had all these rules regarding the Sabbath. We don't find this in the Bible, but— In uh, the Jewish tradition, the Pharisees and other teachers had what was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was a commentary on the Old Testament. It extrapolated uh, all these different commandments and rules um, that they had in the Old Testament, and among them was the Sabbath. And there was a number of rules what you could not do. And I love about Jesus, he breaks rules. There's like this junior high part of me, this rebellious side, that's like, yeah, Jesus is breaking rules. I love it. Okay. Anyways. So, for example, one of the things that that he does is that he heals a man. And healing was allowed on the Sabbath only in life-threatening circumstances. This is not life-threatening. So he broke rule number one. Okay? Next one that he does is that he makes mud. Spits in the dirt, he makes mud. He's working. You can't work on the Sabbath. He broke rule number two. Then he tells the man, go to the pool of Salaam and wash yourself. Okay? And the man does that, and he comes back. Scholars believe that was about a a 1,300-yard walk on the Sabbath. One of the rules was, in the entire day of a Sabbath, you could only walk 1,000 yards. I'm not sure if they had like a clicker or something back then or something, how they kept track of that, you know, GPS or something. You can only walk 1,000 yards. Breaks another rule. So you're in, that, you're in this story, and, and, and by the way, we often kind of brush the Pharisees as, uh, I think we reduce them down as hypocrites, uh, just a bunch of, you know, people that uh, were despised. They were not. They're hostile to Jesus, but you need to understand, there's a number of Pharisees that actually were, were good people. Nicodemus was, was a good example of a Pharisee who was a good person. But they were well-respected, well-respected within the Jewish community. And when they're sharing and responding to the blind man, I think some of us would give in in the same way. Would we respond with legalism, judgment? These may may seem like petty rules, but I think in the same way, when it comes to our own faith, religion, we have our own petty rules too. We look at other people and we think they're not doing it right. Maybe we look at Catholics or Presbyterians or Pentecostals or other religious groups and we think, well, they're not doing it the right way. They're doing it this way. They practice that. Yes, at the same time, we must hold dearly to the gospel that Jesus Christ was born on a virgin birth. He gave his life freely on the cross to defeat sin and death, rose on the third day, ascended to the right hand of God, and will return one day again. Yes, we need to hang on to that, but we need to be careful about the rules that we make and how legalistic we can become. It's easy and tempting for us. So if you're there in the story, would you respond in the same way? With judgment, perhaps, legalism. He's breaking the rules. He's breaking the rules of the Sabbath. I think for us to embrace um, freedom and grace, and it's easy and tempting for us to make these petty religious rules, like a friend of mine says, I think we'll be very surprised by who we see in heaven. Another response. This is found in verses 18 through 23. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and couldn't, could now see, so they called in his parents. Now it's the parents. Okay, parents, how would you respond to this? Mom and dad? Pharisees, well-respected. They bring him over. They asked, they asked him, Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, How can we now see? How how can he now see? His parents replied, We have no idea who he is. No, they don't say that. We know this is is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. I just love that. Ask him. He's old, old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue? That's why they said, He is old enough, ask Him. Now, again, no small thing. The synagogue was the center of Jewish life, and to be expelled from that, the Pharisees could do two different expulsions. Number one, 30 days. They could expel them, that was less severe. They could expel them for 30 days, and some of you are like, Oh, 30 days off from church. That sounds awesome. That's not a penalty but 30 days from the synagogue. Or they could do something more severe where they could have them flogged and uh, expelled from the synagogue for years and also their friends could not talk to them. Only their family. And that was very common. So yeah, I think some of us would be fearful because they'd know that in the back of their mind that there's a chance that they could be expelled in such a way. Imagine you're in the store, you're part of the family, you're you're mom or dad or you're a brother or sister. Uh, Would you allow that fear to hold you back? Or would you cave in to the Pharisees? Would you give in to that kind of peer pressure? And It's amazing how the the presence and proximity of certain people, what what that can do to our actions. There's actually a study done on NFL referees. They actually found that when a referee uh, called a penalty— uh, typically, if they were close to the one sideline near the coaches and the team, um, they would actually call the penalty oftentimes on the other team because of the presence and proximity of the coaches. And it was unbelievable the, the uh, research that was done on it. It was done last year. So hopefully, the referees will be standing near the Minnesota Vikings sideline at noon today. That'd be really nice, wouldn't it? Anyways. there's no doubt that the presence of the Pharisees influenced these parents. And fear is one of our basic emotions. Researchers believe this, that we have eight basic emotions. We have joy, trust, fear, surprise, disgust, anger, anticipation. And fear, that emotion that that holds us back from taking any kind of risk. And, And many of us in here right now we're fearful about taking a step in our lives for a variety of reasons. And as you find yourself in this story, may, may you move and step forward away from that fear and not give into it. Because I, I imagine later on these parents probably regretted giving into to that fear uh, of kind of pushing their son aside and saying, you know, you, you talk, to, talk to them. Instead of praising and, and saying this miracle, is, is, it's incredible. Our son can actually see. He's been blind since birth. He can now see. He can see our faces. He can, he can see his family members. You would think they would have tears in their eyes and, and being so moved that their son can actually see. But instead, they cave into the fear of the Pharisees. What are we caving into? What are we allowing fear to dictate in our lives? May you and I, as we find ourselves in the story, may you and I move ahead and start taking steps. I want to challenge you. Do something that scares you. Do something that scares you. And for many of us, I think it's vocalizing our faith, sharing our belief in Jesus Christ. When's the last time you did that? A couple of months ago, there was a person in our congregation that said, after one of my sermons I talked about sharing your faith, that she did it for the first time, and she said, I was so scared, but I just planted that seed and talked about God. So for you, it, maybe it's vocalizing your faith, sharing your faith. I have the Case Christmas party today at 1 o'clock, and I have 38 cousins. It's a big family. Over 100 people are going to be there. And as I was thinking about this, there's not been many times where I've actually shared my faith, which is awful for a pastor to, to do. But I'm one of the youngest cousins of the entire family. So I look up to all my cousins, and, and I think in a lot of ways, kinda, I've caved in. I've given in to the fear of them. And many of them are not Christians. And for me, as I find myself in the story, for me to share my faith, with my family would be very important for us to get in the situations where we're, gonna, we're, we're determined to share about our faith and not to have to worry even though you're going to be a little bit nervous I am too evangelism isn't one of my gifts so whenever I do that I get a little bit nervous but not to worry about it because the Holy Spirit will empower us Acts chapter uh, 1 verse 9 the Holy Spirit will empower us He'll give you the words to say I mean, what if you were in front of the president of the United States and you were to share your faith? The Holy Spirit would give you the words to say. Has there been a struggle in your life when, when you read this book, the Bible, and you pray and you say, God, what I'm experiencing isn't matching up what I see in terms of the people in this, in, in, in this, uh, in this book. And maybe for you, it's, it's to move beyond simply coming on Sunday, uh, Sunday worship services, or simply going to Bible studies, but actually to go out, to serve, be involved. I think a lot of times when we, when we uh, give the benediction, it's really a sending out for each of us to go out into our spheres of influences and to share about how God has changed us, how Jesus has miraculously changed us from being a sinner into a saint, from being lost to being found, from being blind to actually be able to see. I want to encourage you to do that. A friend of mine who's a pastor did something like this. And again, you might just think that, well, pastors automatically can talk about uh, their faith in, in very easy ways. But a friend of mine who's a, a pastor, he's Asian, and his aunt was in the hospital. And in the Asian culture, you don't talk to your elders about anything, you don't even have, you, typically, you don't even have a conversation. But he was driving to the hospital, and he was, he was praying, and he was thinking, he was saying, God, I don't know much, how, how much longer she has. I haven't told her about Jesus. And he didn't know how to even begin talking to his elder to actually initiate the conversation because it's something you didn't do. And they never had a conversation about spiritual matters. But he, pre- pray, he prayed this, God, please do, please do this for me. I don't know how to get started. I don't know what to say, but show me a miracle and speak your gospel to her. He says this, after two hours sitting at her hospital bed, they were still talking about egg rolls. He thought, it's not going to happen. And suddenly, just like he prayed, the door opened. And they talked about a number of things, about God, salvation. And he drove away with tears in his eyes, saying, God, thank you for the miracle, this miracle of sharing about your truth. And as he shares, now he prays to the Holy Spirit to work in her mind. So for us, that that fill in the blank number three is um, the parents giving in to fear, and for us not to do that. The last one is this: it's the blind man. The blind man reveals a growing faith. I want to kind of walk through uh, just a few verses here because we see this progression in this blind man. It's it's like the more he gets squeezed, the more he gets questioned, the stronger his faith becomes. He has a growing faith. Verse 17. First, he's asked him, what's your opinion about this man? He says, I think he must be a prophet. Okay, so it's kind of, a, kind of a, a subtle step, I think. And then verse 25. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. And that, that uh, verb right there, no, in the Greek is idol. It means to know with certainty. It means to know something definitively. So we see this, I think. Now he knows. And then we move into verse 32 through 33. We see the de- de- development of his faith. Ever since the world began, he shares, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done that. In other words, he is from God. It goes from, I think he's a prophet. And then now he knows And then now he says, this man is from God, right in the face of the Pharisees. He is not afraid. And then finally, verse 38. After Jesus comes to him, and at this point, the context is, this man has been kicked out of the synagogue, excommunicated. But Jesus tracks him down, and and Jesus approaches him and asks him if he believes he's the Son of God. Not just from God but actually the Son of God, the Messiah. And this man finally sees Jesus for who he is. Sees Jesus for who he is. Yes, Lord, I believe. A growing faith. It's absolutely beautiful. And he worshiped Jesus. I like how Max Lucato captures the scene so well. He writes this, The beggar lifts his eyes to look into the face of the one who started all this. Is he going to cr- criticize Christ? for being expelled from the synagogue? Is he going to complain to Christ? You couldn't blame the blind man for doing both. After all, he didn't volunteer for the disease or the deliverance, but he does neither. No, he worshipped him. And I love this. Don't you know he knelt? Don't you think he wept? And how could he keep from wrapping his arms around the waist of the one who gave him sight? He worshipped him. The blind man reveals a growing faith. I want a growing faith. And I pray and hope that you come here because you want a growing faith. And this past week, as I was thinking about this, and thinking about this blind man and and how he shared about Jesus in public, he knelt down before him, is the next 21 days, from this day to Christmas Eve, I'm going to pray for God to open a door for me to share Jesus Christ with somebody each day and to invite them to one of our christmas services. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. It's to pray. Begin your day with a simple prayer, God, open a door for me. Open a door for me for me to share my faith. And that may shake you and your knees may tremble as you think about that, but pray, God, open my open open the doors for me. Give me the opportunity to share about Jesus. And you might be surprised. And maybe, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and, and you don't have many opportunities to connect with people, but, but you'd be surprised But what God may do. Begin each day for 21 days. 21 days is nothing. Begin by saying, God, open a door for me and for me to share about Jesus and share about my faith and invite them to one of our Christmas Eve services. And I had the opportunity, actually, just, just the other day at a, at a restaurant to be able to— take that step and I didn't know what to say and as I talked to the waiter as we talked about spiritual topics and he asked a couple of questions and I shared about my faith and invited him to come on Christmas Eve and, and he's like I, I haven't been to church in 20 some years and I doubt I'll make it to yours I said okay I'll see you next week, I'll be back but think about your hairstylist, think about your restaurants think about your gas stations you go to For those of you who don't have relationships with non-Christians, start going, uh, frequenting the places that you go to. Go to the same place. Go to that same cashier at Menards as you buy some more Christmas stuff. And start beginning a friendship. It's one of the best ways. Because for me, I'm surrounded by Christians all the time. It's kind of a pain. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, but, but for me, I, I have to really go out and, and really initiate. I got a text last night from an old uh, classmate that uh, saw the suit that I'm going to be wearing on December 17th, which is absolutely hideous. But I'm, I'm doing it for our local food shelf, our local outreach team that, uh, that the challenge was, in case you don't know this, uh, the challenge was to uh, uh, collect 1,000 items for uh, across our food shelf. And I, I wagered challenged them, said, if you do that, I'll wear this crazy, bright red, awful Christmas outfit on December 17th, which, by the way, is when the kids sing. So it's going to be a weird morning. I'm just, I'm telling you right now, I will preach in that suit. And you need to know something about me. I don't do costume, I don't do, that. I'm not a costume guy. So that, this is really, for me, stepping out. Brian's like, I'll wear it. Let me wear it. He wants to wear it. So maybe Brian will buy his own. You can buy a blue version. Okay. Anyways, um, what was my point? I lost my point. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but I, I was just talking with, with him because um, he noticed the, the picture I, I posted last night, and he's like, wow, that was really cool that your, your church did that. And here's another guy. I need to reach out. I need to pray for that opportunity. Unfortunately, I didn't take that step and, and say, hey, you know, Joe, I've known you for thirty years. I just want to share once again, you know, my testimony. I shared it a number of years ago, like twenty-some years ago, but it's been a long time. And he doesn't go to church, and I ought to invite him. So I want to challenge you to do the same thing. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks for this remarkable story, one of the sixteen uh, reported miracles uh, of Jesus in the Gospels, and to see the example of this blind man. The blind man who could now see. He was once blind, but now he had sight. And think about the Pharisees who had sight, but really were spiritually blind. The contrast is amazing. God open our eyes, open the doors in our, in, in our lives to friends and family uh, to share about Jesus Christ, to reach out and invite folks to our Christmas Eve services, people that perhaps do not have a church home, people perhaps that have not been at church for a long, long time. And it's not about having uh, big services, but it's for them to hear the message, the story, the story. In Christ's name, amen.